the rest. This morning we're going to continue on in our study of First Samuel, and so if you'll take your Bibles and turn with me to First Samuel chapter two. And if you're using your pew Bible this morning, that can be found on page 225. 225, 1 Samuel chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down the Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillows of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Let's pray together. Father, we just sung about your holiness, your wonder, your glory. And I see this in Hannah's prayer, Father, that we just read as well. Lord, we pray that you would fill our minds with your glory, that we may reflect that out to those around us as your image bearers. Lord, we pray for our brother, Pastor Toby, as he comes. Fill him with your spirit as he teaches from your word, that our hearts may be changed. Lord, help us to see what needs to be rooted out and what we need to put on, Father. We do thank you in Jesus' name. Good morning. Kurt mentioned uh, the goals that we have for our congregation this year, and 
Uh, you may wonder how we're going to measure all of that. Uh, I mean, how, how do I measure? You, do I need you to, you know, post on Instagram you with your open Bible each day in order for me to be convinced that you read it? Well, we can't measure all of it, to be quite frank, uh, but uh, we can measure some. We know how many people made commitments. We know how many people come as part of our prayer meeting each month. They were right at 75 in January and about 60 to 65 last week. We praise the Lord for all of that. Um, but how can we know if everybody's fulfilling their commitment? Well, quite frankly, we can't. I can't know if you are fulfilling your commitment. But what I would love to suggest is that you share how the Lord is working as you seek to pursue these commitments. Send an email, share it in your Sunday school class, in your growth group, uh, with a friend. Uh, maybe we could have some shared at a members meeting, members meetings this year, maybe even on Sunday morning. In fact, this morning, uh, Dottie Hadley stopped me uh, very excited because uh, she had opened up her home to a family she did not know well. They were in her growth group. She had always known you invite your friends over for dinner. She had never done the whole invite somebody you don't know over for dinner. And uh, she was giddy with excitement because of how the Lord connected her with Jason and Sarah Vedas and their two kiddos. And what a wonderful thing that is. And now their relationship will be different, even interacting here uh, within the congregation because of that. And so uh, stay steady, folks. Just do it. I mean, and that was something she had never done. She would have never done if she hadn't put her name down on that commitment card and said, I am going to do this. There's nothing magic about that commitment card, but it does say something. It's just like, well, I said I'm going to do it. I should probably do it. And then you'll find out even the things that are more difficult and challenging for you, the Lord will come along and bless and help you. So I encourage you, as uh, Kurt did, uh, to keep those. I wonder how you respond when the Lord answers your prayers. I think many of us would be quick to say that we're thankful, that we would take time to thank the Lord for answering our prayers, for whatever it is that we have asked for. So even this morning, we thanked the Lord together for the way that God seems to continually be pushing back the leukemia in Adam Stuckey's body. This morning, we thank the Lord for how in Dylan's life, he is restoring his body. We thank the Lord for that. We thank the Lord for the way he is bringing healing in your life step by step, Susan. We are thankful for the way that there has, has been good change in Sandy Hansen. She is not where she could be, but she is certainly not where she was. We thank God for these kinds of things. We thank God for any number of other things, for the way that He helps us to grow in Christ's likeness through suffering, through things that do not go the way that we had planned. And yet He brings growth and help, and we can observe changes in our life because of that, that two years ago I would have responded this way to you, but by God's grace, I've responded this way today. And we thank God for that. But I wonder, is there more to say about those answers to prayer than thank you? And this is where Hannah will help to teach us in 1 Samuel chapter 2. 
Last week, we began our journey through this uh, book. You remember where we started. Hannah was barren and broken, and God opens her womb, gives her a child. And last week ended with this mini worship service at the end of chapter 1 with Hannah and her husband and a priest all worshiping the Lord. And as the curtain on chapter 2 opens, we get to see more of the particulars of this worship service. In chapter 1, we zoomed in and we had the privilege of listening to Hannah pray in desperation. And here in chapter 2, the Bible shows us the detail, gives us the substance of her prayer of exaltation. Now, you know that prayer happens throughout the Bible, right? It happens all the time. It's mentioned many, many times. But, but isn't it true that hearing how people pray is so very helpful? It's one thing to know that a friend of yours prays a lot and has great intimacy with the Lord, and you, you are challenged and encouraged by that example from afar, but it's different when you sit down with them to pray, and you get to hear that intimacy with God. You get to hear that. Think about Jesus. In the Gospels, Jesus is said to pray many times. But in a place like John 17, as the camera zooms in and the narrative slows down and we get to hear the high priestly prayer of Jesus, we get to hear the prayers of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, of course we are challenged by the example of Jesus to pray, but we are encouraged and challenged and taught and inspired by the substance of His prayers. So I would encourage you, whenever the Bible slows down, and gives you the substance of prayers, pay attention. Pay attention to them. Look and see what is going on here. And that's what the Bible does here with Hannah's prayer. Her heart, she says, exults in the Lord. She's giddy. She can't wipe the smile off her face. And from her prayer, we learn this. God's people rejoice in God's work. It's just simple. God's people rejoice in God's work. Hannah's rejoicing? We should. Now, we're going to see this. This breaks down fairly reasonably into three sections. First, what God has done. Then, what God does. Then, what God will do. Okay? So, first, what God has done, specifically in Hannah's life. Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Hannah was powerless. She couldn't have a child. She couldn't make herself a mother. And the Lord, she says, exalted her horn. Now, that's a familiar phrase, isn't it? Don't you use that all the time? I mean, when Susan and I went to the hospital to hold little Eliza and visit Kathleen and Kyle, they just couldn't stop talking about how the Lord had raised their, exalted their horn. I mean, that happens. You, get a, you can get a card from Hallmark saying, congrats, we praise the Lord because He's exalted your horn and given you a baby. Well, no, nobody talks like that. Well, what is it? Well, it's an idiom in the Hebrew language. The horn is a picture from the animal kingdom of power and strength. So when Hannah says that the Lord has exalted her horn, it means that she was destitute when it comes to power and strength, and the Lord lifted her up, gave strength, gave power, so that she could actually conceive a son. 
so that she could carry that son, so that she could deliver that son. And our God loves to do this, doesn't He? Isaiah 40, He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. This moment is so significant for Hannah that she calls it her salvation. Did you notice that? This is not salvation as you and I talk about salvation. This is a term that just means deliverance. It can be used to deliver from enemies, deliver from slavery, deliver from oppression, And Hannah is so moved and exultant in the Lord. She says, Lord, you saved me. She was saved from childlessness. She was delivered from barrenness. She was brought safely into motherhood. And then she confesses her faith in the one who's done it. Verse 2, there is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God, the God who saves Hannah is three times holy. Did you notice that? There is none holy like you, way number one. There is none besides you, same thing. There is no rock like our God. Do you know what Hannah's saying? She's saying exactly what Isaiah will say later. Our, her God is holy, holy, holy. Taking that truth, that attribute, that great uniqueness of God to the third power, to the absolute superlative, as high as you can take it. You can't take it any higher. No other God could open her womb. The other so-called gods of the other peoples, they aren't gods at all. They're just idols. You know what people have to do? People have to give idols life. People have to give idols names. People have to give idols their stories, but not Hannah's God. Hannah God gave her life. God gave her her name. God gave her her story. Everything hinges on God. God has no rival in Hannah's life. There's none besides Him. There is no rock like Him, like our God. That's glorious. This is the God who has worked in her life. This is actually why she opens wide her mouth to speak to her enemies. That's what the word deride means in verse 1. She opens wide her mouth. She will be heard when it comes to the uniqueness of God and and, and the difficulty and the trouble and the warning against all who would stand against Him. So that in verse 3, she gives this warning. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. Now, given Hannah's story, who do you think she's talking about? Well, she could be talking about Peninnah, couldn't she? And maybe Peninnah's in the group, but these verbs are plural. They're for anyone who would try to stand against this God. Anyone who would speak against this God. Anyone who would exalt themselves when God alone is exalted in the universe. He knows us through and through. He knows what he knows quite frankly that we're not all we make ourselves out to be. He's not we're, we're not just what we write on our resume to get the job. He knows us. 
And in the end, he'll have the last word about us. That's what she says. The Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him, actions are weighed. This holy, holy, holy God has saved Hannah from her barrenness and from the oppression that came with it. That is what God has done. But then we move on to what God does. You see, what God has done in Hannah's life fits a pattern of what God does. Hannah's story is amazing, isn't it? Don't you think? Hannah's story is miraculous, isn't it? But when you read the Bible, Hannah's story is not unique. There's so many other times things like this happen. God reverses what seems logical to us. This is the very thing that God is always doing. He he gives barren women children. He, He gives favor to the outcast, and He casts out the one who seems favorable. He takes the Super Bowl ring off the Kansas City Chiefs' finger and puts it on the finger of the Cincinnati Bengals. This is the kind of thing God is always doing. Listen to it. Verses 4 and 5. Well, it's not the Titans this year, which is even better, because at least we made the playoffs, all right? So, verses verses 4 and 5. Listen, the bows of the mighty are broken. The invincible are broken. The feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, and those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. You can expect God to do the unexpected. You can expect Him to reverse the course of life. This is what He does. It looks bound in one direction, and God, by His power and compassion, reverses the course. You remember Gideon, don't you? Hannah would remember who Gideon was. It hasn't been all that long ago, and the stories about him are still going around. And here's Gideon, selected by God to lead an army against 135,000 Midianites, He has 32,000 men, and God says, that is too many. Some go home. That is still too many. How's about 300, Gideon? That's who we want. Not because they're super spies who lap water out of their hands, but because you need to see that the only way you're going to win this is by the power of God. And God takes those feeble 300 and binds on strength, and he breaks the bow of the mighty 135,000 opponents. This is what God is always doing. This is the kind of thing you find when you get to the New Testament. Jesus continues this same pattern. This is how Jesus teaches you in the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe you remember. He stands, and he's teaching what it means to live in his kingdom, and he says these kinds of things. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. 
In other places, Jesus says, you, you have to lose your life to find it. And if you go about trying to save your life, you'll lose it. That humble people will be exalted, and that exalted people will be humbled. Jesus tells a rich man that the only way he's going to try find true riches is if he sells everything and gives it away. Jesus sits in the house of a Pharisee, probably graduated in the top 1% of his seminary class. He is a trained theologian, and Jesus points to the prostitute at his feet, and he says, Simon, you see that woman there? She understands more about God and about love and about forgiveness than you ever will. This is a complete reversal of what you might expect. What God's done for Hannah fits a pattern of what God does all the time. Hannah keeps going. Verse 6, the Lord kills and brings to life. The Lord brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low and He exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them He has set the world. So this pattern is basically this. The, where Hannah's life fits in God's pattern is here. God's pattern is absolute power plus incredible compassion. Absolute power plus incredible compassion. That's what happens in Hannah's life. That's what happens all the time. I mean, this business about the ash heap, this is basically the city dump where you take your garbage uh, to be burned. That's what the ashes actually are. And the needy may poke around there to try to find something with something edible, is something usable in there, but God has compassion on them. He lifts them up out of the garbage heap, and He takes them, and He replaces that dishonor with the honor of a prince's seat. Absolute power plus incredible compassion. Her little salvation, in other words, fits into this larger pattern so that it's so, it burns itself into the consciousness and the story of the nation of Israel. God doesn't choose Israel because they're so mighty, because they're so well-trained, because they're so powerful in the military. He basically chooses them because He chooses them. He loves them because He loves them. They are nothing, and He is going to make them the center of His work in the world. And so Hannah's story resonates with the nation of Israel. Her words do, such that they are penned and put in the hymn book of the nation of Israel. Her story is, listen to Psalm 113. He, 7 to 9, He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of His people. And here's where the change comes. He gives the barren woman a home and makes her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. That's where that story is going to lodge. It's going to lodge right in the hymn book that people are going to open. Everybody open up to hymn number 113. Little Abraham stands next to his mother. Little Jacob, little whoever, stands next to his Mommy, why are we singing this? Oh, let me tell you the story. Let me tell you about a woman who lived her life in the ash heap. 
And God raised her up and has set her in a place of honor such that we sing about her all the time because of what God has done. We remember her because what God has done fits into what God is doing. And this way of working, this absolute power meeting incredible compassion, this, this reversal of the first being last and the last being first, this is one of the most confusing things for people who are not Christians. And it is one of the most precious things to those of us who are. You see, the gospel itself is the story of God's absolute power coming with incredible compassion and bringing complete reversal. So, reversal number one, I mean, the Bible says we're sinners. We often say that. We know that. But think about what sin does. Sin makes promises. It promises that it has the power to give you joy and fulfillment and self-realization and pleasure and more. And in some strange way, it seems to give some of those things. But the benefits are twisted and temporary because sin can't give us any of these. Sin promises the height of fulfilled living, and then it gets reversed, and we have nothing but the emptiness of death. But then reversal number two is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He is the holy, holy, holy God. He has existed forever. He created all things. He upholds all things by His power. Jesus does not need to brag or boast. He in Himself, in His very nature, is exalted above all. And yet the exalted one humbled Himself took on human flesh, and more than that, went to the cross and bore human corruption and faced humanity's punishment. Peter expresses this reversal well. It's such a great turn of phrase when he's preaching to the Jews who had handed over Jesus to the Romans to die. He says in Acts 3.15, you killed the author of life. It's the very reversal But more than that, Hebrews 2 tells us that through death He destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. So the author of life submits to death to conquer death. And then the Father, having sent Jesus to die, reverses that death, doesn't He? Death can't hold Him. And God raises him from the dead on the third day, vindicating him, declaring that his sacrifice is sufficient for our sin. You see, the Lord kills and the Lord brings to life. The Lord brings down to Sheol and raises up. And then reversal three. There's sin's reversal, promising the the height of heights and giving us the depths. Jesus' reversal, the author of life submitting to death, to conquer death, to be raised to life. And reversal three is actually in us, in a world that builds us up and tells us we can do anything if we work hard enough, that if we do good, we will receive good, that we will get what we deserve. God says we'll only be built up if we see how sin's torn us down. And that if we look to Him, we'll also see that 
we can't reverse the course of our lives. We can't turn over a new leaf. We won't receive good by doing good. We can't be good enough. In fact, we're not good at the heart of it all. Our whole way of thinking has to be reversed to align with God's way of thinking. That is what repentance is. And we have to come to trust in Jesus and call on Him to save us. That is faith. And when we come to faith, here's another reversal. Everything gets reversed, doesn't it? We once were blind, but now we see. We once were lost, but now we're found. We were once destined for hell, and now we are bound for heaven. You see, coming to Jesus, we lose the life we thought we had to find a life we never knew was possible, a life forgiven of sin, of knowing God, of hope, eternal life. Every other religion says you're going to get what you deserve, but Christianity does not. The Bible teaches us that Jesus got what we deserved so that we could get what we will never deserve. Don't you want your life turned upside down like that? People walk around not wanting their lives messed up, but what if your life being messed up actually made it right? You have to turn from your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other way to turn our lives right way up before the Lord. There is no other way to be forgiven. There is no other way to heaven. There is no other way of eternal life. You see, what happened in Hannah's life fits the pattern of what God does in general. He lifts us up from the muck and the mire, and He sets us on a rock that will never shift, the rock of Jesus Christ. That's what God does. He reverses everything to give undeserved, unearned blessing. Well, that brings us to the last thing, to what God will do. What God has done for Hannah fits in the pattern of what God does, and it points to what God will do. Hannah's eye now turns to the future because the answer to her prayer, her little salvation points to a great day of salvation that is to come. Listen to verse 9 and 10. He will guard the feet of His faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth and give strength to His King and exalt the horn of His anointed. That great day of salvation is going to be, according to these two verses, a day of separation. She prays prophetically. On one side are God's enemies, those who have opposed Him, refused Him. And on that day, they will hear the voice of God, not calling to them, come to me, but thundering in judgment. They will be cut off permanently, never seeing the light of God's presence, but instead having eternal pitch black darkness. These are people who think they have it all together, that they have life figured out, that they are invincible. But that fantasy will be shattered on the last day. 
and so will they. That's what it means by the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. They will be shattered. You see, Hannah's barrenness only shattered her temporarily. But opposing the Lord will shatter forever. The whole Bible teaches this reality for those who refuse the Lord, for those who in this life refuse His grace and His kindness. The New Testament describes this unending, dreadful experience with these words, weeping and gnashing of teeth. This, friends, is hell. And it is why you must, you must Take God's call to turn to Him in faith seriously. It is why you must come to Jesus. This hell is what Jesus will save you from if you do. And dear Christian, this is why sharing the gospel is something we must take very seriously. We have to believe that God is worthy of the worship of every single human being we encounter. And we must believe that every human being we encounter, every human being in our circle of acquaintances and friends, are made in the image of God and will eternally exist in one of two places. And we must believe that Jesus Christ is the only way into fellowship with the Father forever. Not to get them to repeat some prayer, but to have their whole life reversed by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. You must believe, I must believe, that the one that we are sharing with is not simply a project to get through. It is one who is either destined for hell or will be bound for heaven. There is no other end. On one side are God's enemies. And on the other side are God's faithful ones, those who trust Him. She says the adversaries of the Lord, uh, sorry, He will guard the feet of His faithful ones. They will be guarded. You remember when God uh, expelled Adam and Eve from the garden and it says that He set up Uh, angels there to guard the way back to the tree of life. You remember that? That word guard, like nothing is getting past those angels. That word guard is the word guard here. Nothing is getting past the Lord to get to His faithful ones. Nothing. Nothing can touch you that can really harm you in eternity. You will face suffering as Jesus did. We will face suffering as Jesus did, but not one ounce of the suffering of this life, not one ounce of it, will affect your relationship with God in eternity. It will not shake you loose from His grip. It can't do it. Thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. That's why God sends the suffering. 
How ridiculous it would be if God sent suffering to shake you loose from His own hand, which He's promised will never lose its grip. He has such great purposes for us, for you. He will guard your feet. You will not slip. That's what Psalm 121 says, isn't it? He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. And it finishes, the Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. Nothing can snatch you out of His hand. Nothing will get past God, the great guard of His faithful ones. Nothing, nothing, nothing. The enemy would love to convince you that because of whatever it is that you're walking through, that God has somehow lost track of you, that His love somehow has diminished for you, that something has gotten past His defenses and really gotten to you. But that is simply not the case. The hand that gives me strength from day to day will never lose its power. Never. And the only ones who will be kept safe from the weeping and the gnashing of teeth, from the darkness, from the being cut off, are those that are God's faithful ones. In the scope of the Bible, that is those who are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ alone to save them. And this division, this separation will come through a king. Look at this, the end of verse 10. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to His king and exalt the horn of His anointed one, His anointed. That's the first time His anointed is used in the whole Bible. It comes out of the mouth of Hannah in this prayer. God's going to raise Him up. God's going to exalt His horn to bring about this final judgment this day of salvation. Now look, when you read, you see we're at 1 Samuel 2, right? Do you know which direction you have to go in the Bible to start finding kings? Forward. You got to go forward. How is she talking about a king when they don't have a king? This is some people take this to me. This some people take this as a way to attack the veracity of the Bible and to say, well, somebody else just added this in later. Well, no. Because you see, what God did in Genesis 17, when He repeats His promise, His repeats His covenant to Abraham, do you know what He says? Kings shall come from you. Kings shall come from you. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 17, Moses lays out requirements for a king. And then even Gideon, when he has his great uh, his great uh, victory, do you know what happens? In, in Judges 8.22, the people look at him and what do they say? Rule over us. You and your sons be our princes. The whole longing for a king is already there. The idea of a king is already swirling in the background. And Hannah says, oh yes, he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Now in time, many kings will come. If we were to go forward and read about all these kings we would see that not even the best of them will do what Hannah's king is said to do. And the Old Testament comes to an end, if you will, with God's people still looking for a leader, looking 
for a king. But he does come through another unexpected and surprising pregnancy. Not to a barren woman this time, but to a virgin, Mary, whose song in Luke chapter 1 echoes so much of what Hannah says in 1 Samuel chapter 2. And that king is Jesus. The angel says of Jesus, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to Him the throne of His father David. And He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of His kingdom there will be no end. And then a priest named Zechariah basically says he will fulfill the prophecy that is in Hannah's prayer when he says this, God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And as he hung on the cross, you know what hung above his head? A sign that said, King of the Jews. Someone, just un, Pilate just unknowingly put the label up there. And he, he, it wasn't just an accusation. It was true. He is the king. And then in the end, you know what will happen? Revelation chapter 17, verse 14, They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with Him are called what? Are called and chosen and faithful. Jesus will defeat all of the enemies. He will shatter them to pieces. He is the one who will send into darkness Against Him, the might of no one will prevail. And He will guard His faithful ones forever and ever. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord, our Lord and of His Christ. And He shall reign forever. The question is, where do you fall in that separation? It is going to happen, and Jesus will win, and those who are the faithful ones will win with Him. But are you on the side of the enemies, even religious enemies, moral enemies, trying to be good and raise a good family, enemies, seeking to give to help those in need? enemies. Oh, the enemies come in many, many different flavors, but they are all enemies. Until through Jesus Christ, one is reconciled and made a faithful one. Which one are you? Dear Christian, as we finish, look at your own life. Think back to the question I asked at the beginning. How do you respond when God answers your prayers? Do you see what Hannah does? Hannah sees her prayers in light of what God ordinarily does and how it points forward to what God will do. So let's just walk through. We prayed for Adam Stuckey. God has pushed back the leukemia once again. What does that say about what, who God is? That He is merciful. What does it point to? It points to a day 
when God will fully and finally push back leukemia and every other form of suffering and pain and death itself. When God answers the prayer for healing, it points to a day when that healing will fully and finally come. When God prays for when we play for, when God answers the prayer for relief, it points to a day when there will never be anything but relief in his presence. When we pray for Christ's likeness through suffering, it points to the day when a life of suffering will result in being made like him. When we pray for unreached people groups and people to go to them with the gospel and translate the word, and then it happens, it points forward to the day when people from every tongue and tribe and language will be around the throne of God worshiping him and saying, salvation is from the Lord and it's of his Christ. Don't just see your prayer, answered prayer as an answer to prayer. Think about what does this say about God? What does it say about His character? What does it say about what God will do in the future? How does this point forward? Because if you do that, you know what will strengthen in your life? Hope. Hope will strengthen in your life. Hope for the last day. Hope for the reward. Hope for the relief. Hope for seeing Jesus Christ face to face and enjoying Him forever unhindered. You see, because if we look at what God has done for us in Christ, and we see what God does for us in Christ day by day, and we look forward to what God will do in the future because of Christ and through Christ, how can we do anything but exult in the Lord? We have great reason to rejoice, brothers and sisters. And we have no reason to disobey Philippians 4.4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Why? Because of what God has done. Because of what God is doing. And because of what God will do. God's people rejoice in God's work. Let's pray together. Our Father, we bow before you and we join Hannah in being giddy with joy in your presence, thinking about what you have done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ, how you have laid our sin on him satisfied your wrath in his death, counted us righteous before you through faith in him. We are in awe of that. We are in awe of the way you are at work in us, conforming us to the image of your Son, that through the hardness of this life, you squeeze out all which must be changed. You show us where we are not patient, where we are not trusting, where we doubt You. You show us so many things through the difficulties of life to continue Your good work. And we praise You for what You will do. That He who began a good work in us will complete it in the day of Jesus Christ. We thank You that You will do that. We thank You that we don't have to doubt it. 
because Jesus Christ is raised from the dead and ascended to your side. We pray that as we continue to pray and as you continue to answer our prayers, we pray you will help us to see those answers of, to prayer with eyes of faith. Not just to be thankful, though we want to be thankful, but to also see that what you do in our lives reveals who you are and points forward to what you will do. And so we ask for your grace to do that. Lord, I pray for those who are here that each of us would examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith, would ask, am I on the side of God's enemies or God's faithful ones? I pray by your grace you'll bring conviction to sin and give them eyes to see the beauty and salvation available in Jesus Christ and that you will give them grace and open their eyes that they might run to Jesus and live. Do it, Lord. You are the only one who can. We pray for ourselves as a congregation that we would be a people who rejoice in your work. No matter how it comes, no matter the way in which it comes, Help us to be a people who rejoice in your work. We pray in Jesus' name.